Genesis chapter 43. Almost a month ago, I think it was about a month ago when I uh, began the chapter, we were dealing with the issue of rebuilding trust. And the family of Jacob, especially the sons of Jacob, uh, minus Joseph, of course, were really in need of being rebuilt as a family in a lot of different ways. But especially in the area of trust. But we add to this idea of, of, of rebuilding trust the fact that this was to be done in a climate of fear. And God has put the brothers of Joseph in this situation where they're responding to the consequences of their sins that go all the way back to the way they mistreated Joseph, the way they wanted to kill him and eventually sold him into slavery and and wrote him off as dead. To even before that, when they, as brothers, were committing such atrocious sins, God said, it is out of these men that I'm going to build a nation. But their lives needed to be rebuilt. And one way that God does that is in the testing of our hearts. And whereas the brothers of Joseph had lived their lives for the most part without any care or concern for the presence of God. And Jacob not helping the matter as much in that he didn't really witness and give testimony of the God of Abraham and Isaac, his grandfather and father. But Jacob, even for a time, was just trying to work things out for himself really becomes a tremendous mirror to the things that we at times ourselves do. Try to work things out ourselves rather than trust in the God of our lives. The God who created us, the God who knows us better than we know ourselves. And everything fell into place with God as far as Joseph now having been left for dead, but he becomes the prime minister of all of Egypt, the second in command. Isn't it great how God works? Since chapter 37, when we are introduced to the life of Joseph, all we have seen is Joseph go through trial after trial after trial after struggle after pain and affliction and hurt. And every step that he goes through, we are assured that God is with him. That's a great lesson for us in itself. That with every struggle that we have gone through, God is with us. And we have to recognize that. And recognize the fact that no struggle is too big for God to help us through. 
And the time comes when there's this great famine that takes place in all of the land, in Egypt and even into the land of Canaan, that affects the family of Jacob, so much so that the sons have to go down to Egypt to purchase grain. And who do they have to purchase this grain from? Their brother Joseph. They don't know that. And Joseph, not wanting to reveal yet who he is to them, because he realizes there's only ten brothers there. There's an eleventh brother not with them. Benjamin, his own brother from the same mother. So he accuses them of being spies. And they say, no, no, we just, we just came down to buy grain for our family. No, you're spies. Are there, any other, are there any other brothers? Well, yes, there's Benjamin, but he's with the father. And Joseph takes one brother, Simeon, and he puts him in, into prison. And, and he says, listen, you go and take your grain, feed your family, but the next time you come down, I want you to bring Benjamin with you. On their way back home, they find out that all the money they had brought to purchase the grain was back in their bags. And all of a sudden they started thinking, boy, this is not good. They're going to accuse us of stealing, of robbery, thievery. And when we get back, they're going to put us all in prison and probably kill us. But if we don't do what they say, we're going to lose our brother Simeon anyway. They tell Jacob, we need to take Benjamin. He says, no, you can't take him. What do you want to just kill me? Might as well kill me now. I've already lost one son. Now I'm going to lose the one that I have replaced at least in in favor. But eventually Jacob, Jacob says, okay, take him, but take this present along with you and double the money. Double the money. Let him know that you didn't steal the money. And if I'm bereaved... I'm bereaved. But Jacob does something here at the first part of this chapter that he hadn't done in a long time. He refers his sons to their God. It's a start. Sometimes we need to have that start, don't we? Just get reintroduced to God again after we've set him aside I'm thankful that the God that we at times set aside is a God who loves us so much that he's patient with us as well and you have to think how patient he's been with these sons of Jacob so now they're on their way back to Egypt and this is where we pick up in our account in Genesis 43 Rebuilding trust in a climate of fear. Verse 15. So the men took that present, the present of all of these dried fruits and all the things that they had probably stored up to bring to Joseph. The men took the present and Benjamin and they took double money in their hand and arose and they went down to Egypt and they stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready, for these men will dine with me at noon. 
And then the man did as Joseph ordered, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid. Please take note of that. Fear. The men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house, and they said, It is because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may make a case against us and fall upon us to take us as slaves with our donkeys. You know, it would probably be accurate to say that the past had shattered Joseph's ability to trust his brothers. I think that's a pretty accurate thought. The past, all the things that they had done before had shattered Joseph's ability to trust his brothers. In order to trust them though, Joseph needed to know and believe two things. That they were telling him the whole truth and that they were truly sorry for what they had done both before God and man. Simeon at this point was still being held in prison in Egypt and Jacob's other sons, having exhausted their provision obtained on their previous trip, were returning once again uh, to Egypt with their youngest brother Benjamin now. But surely questions would abound. Questions would begin to rise up in their minds and in their hearts. Questions like, will that Egyptian prime minister believe us about the money? We haven't been able to convince many people about what we do because we're pretty much liars and thieves and all kinds of stuff anyway. So can we convince this guy that we're not thieves? We didn't really take the money ourselves. Will he release Simeon as he promised or will we all be thrown into prison? I mean, these are valid questions. Or will he let us return in peace with food for our families? What is going to happen? What is going to happen in the realm of the unknown? You ever face that? I think we all do. We know we have a schedule for tomorrow, Monday. The greatest day of the week, right? We all have a schedule for Monday. But we don't always know what's going to happen. There's always that realm of the unknown. And we might have questions about it. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we can enter into a Monday or a Tuesday or a Wednesday or whatever day it is, knowing that God's with us. And if we have any questions whatsoever, God knows the answers. That's the reason why we need to stay in good touch with God every day. That's why we need to pray every day, why we need to read His Word every day, why we need to get ourselves ready and prepared for the day, because we realize we're going to face those times of the unknown. So with these questions were great fears as well. Great enough to cause them great anxiety as they awaited their fate, whatever that fate was going to be. It was that same fear that gripped them when they found the money in their bags on their return trip from Egypt. That's why they took double the money. And even in this great fear, they would still have to stand before Joseph. But as Joseph sees his brother Benjamin for the first time in over 20 years, he invites them to his home for a noontime meal. But for these brothers, it becomes the invitation to fear. 
It becomes the invitation to fear. To their great surprise, when they arrived in Egypt, they were taken to Joseph's mansion. And they were terrified. They were terrified because they already believed that they were on their way to prison because of the money. They were probably saying, this is it, fellas, we're done for, man. The end of the, the, end of the road has come for us. You see, that's how you think when you're dealing with a guilty conscience. A guilty conscience does strange things to our minds. It does strange things to our thoughts. I was reminded this week of this, this passage in, in, in Proverbs chapter 28 verse 1 where it says, The wicked flee when no one pursues. That's one of those strange things that happen to our minds when we bear a guilty conscience. The wicked flee when no one pursues. Because we're guilty, we're always looking over our shoulders. Somebody's going to get me for what I've done. <clears throat> always forgetting <laughs> that it's God who's going to get them. <laughs> They're worried about other people coming after them. Hey, how about the Lord? Who knows what you've done? I like the second part of the verse, but, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Why can the righteous be bold as a lion? Why can we be bold and not worry whether anybody's coming after us? Because we've entrusted our lives to Christ. We've entrusted our lives to the Lord. We can be bold as a lion because we've entrusted our life to the Lion of Judah. Our fears are not based upon, you know, what anybody else thinks about us. Listen, as Christians, we already know the world doesn't like us. As a matter of fact, we know much of the world hates us because we believe in Jesus Christ and we trust the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. We know everybody hates us, but that's okay because, you know what, we're right before God. But we're not right before God because we've done anything. We're right before God because we are covered in the righteousness of Christ. And, pray, and praise God for that. So when it says that the wicked flee when no one is pursuing, that is, the, that, that is just the, the, the big picture of, of a guilty conscience. Never being at peace. Always knowing that the road will end. And all it takes, folks, when you think about it, all it takes is a simple word of confession. If we confess our sins, it says in 1 John 1, 9, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that we no longer have to be looking over our shoulders. Or we settle something with someone else and say to them, I have offended you, please forgive me. We seek forgiveness. We repent of our sins. 
So Joseph's brothers <coughs> so misunderstood the invitation that was given to them, an invitation that was going to be a great blessing for them, but they didn't see it as a blessing. They saw it as a great curse. That's what happens with a guilty conscience. It does strange things to our thought patterns. No longer what becomes a blessing is a blessing. And then their father Jacob certainly didn't give them any reason to hope. I mean, he saw gloom in his own adverse circumstances, revealing that he was still struggling with his own faith through adversity. Before our text, he says, he says, I, I, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. But go. Take Benjamin. If I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. Uh, you know, whatever will be, will be. At the end of the day, it is what it is. <laughs> and the person that should have been the great testimony of God's power and of God's strength and of God's grace and mercy. His faith waddled in adversity. Proverbs 24 verse 10 says, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. The fact of the matter is, when we acknowledge the fact that our strength is small, then we realize that God's strength is much greater than ours. We won't faint in adversity if we will acknowledge that when we are weak, then He is strong. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. When I am weak, then I am strong. But if we try to face things and deal with things on our own strength, we'll find that our strength will always be small. And we will faint in the day of adversity. And this is one of the tests for Jacob, and it was certainly one of the tests for the sons of Jacob. Would they faint in the midst of the adversities that they have been facing, all due to the the great uh, uh, guilty conscience that they had, and they, they they were just looking at everything was going to lead to their destruction? But they decided something. They decided to intercede in their fear. There's an interceding in the fear that goes on in verses 19 through 23. Let me read that to you. When they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house. They talked with him at the door of the house. Notice they, they haven't really got to Joseph yet, so they're talking with his steward. In other words, his, his assistant, his, his manager of his, of his household. And it says, and they said to him, Oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. They're pleading their case with this guy first. Oh, listen, the first time we came, we came to buy food. But it happened when, when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks. And oh, and there, each man's money was in the mouth of his sack. Our money in full weight. So we have brought it back in our hand. And we have brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. Honest engine. Remember ever saying that? Honest engine. I know it's politically incorrect, but bear with me. We didn't steal the money. 
And the fact is, we know that they didn't steal it. They were totally astonished that they had the money back in their sacks. So what does the steward say? Verse 23, he said to them, Shalom! Honestly, that's what he said. I'm sure he spoke to them this Hebrew word. Shalom! Be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. In other words, I was the one who put it there. I knew this all along. My master, the prime minister, told me to put it there for you. And then something else happens. And then he brought Simeon out to them. He was released from prison. So here they are, frantic with fear. The brothers quickly endeavored to intercede on their own behalf with the steward of Joseph's house in hope of averting doom. What they reported was meant to clear them of being thieves. In in essence, what they were doing was, we've got to test this out on this steward before we spill our guts to the prime minister. But that's what we do sometimes. We're all, you know, we're we're, we're in the midst of all of this this guilt that we've done something wrong. But now everything that happens makes us makes us feel that we're being accused of doing something wrong. And so we got to find one person that we can go and say, you know what? We really didn't do this. I got to test this out on you before I go tell him because I don't know what he's going to do if we tell him that we did it and and there's no proof that we didn't. Their fear was intensifying. It was growing. But don't you just love the steward's response? I mean, I just love what this this steward said because this steward, first of all, remember, he was Egyptian. And this steward also was probably a pagan worshiper, probably the sun, the worshiper of the sun god Ra. Ra, Ra. And yet what he says to him reveals something else about the testimony of Joseph to his people about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I just love what this man said to them. He said, Shalom be to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I I had your money. I was the one. Your God blessed you. What reassurance was given to their interceding? It really wasn't their interceding. But it was the opportunity for them to hear these words. The steward indicated by his words that the brothers were not suspected of dishonesty and that if they found the money in their bags to simply attribute the favor to the blessings of their God. But what the steward said is of utmost importance. When he said, peace be with you, do not be afraid. In essence, what he said to them was, Shalom be to you health, in other words, health and wholeness and prosperity and peace be yours. That's what Shalom means. It isn't just peace. It isn't just a greeting. 
It is saying God's health and God's prosperity and God's wholeness and God's completeness and God's peace be yours. That word is rich. And by the way, when I talk about the, the, the word prosperity here, you know, we sometimes say, well, it's, it, it, is, is that material? It's not always material. In this particular case, it's spiritual. God wants us to prosper spiritually. I want to bless you with God's blessings for spiritual prosperity in your lives each and every day, each and every time that we gather together in this place. I want God's wholeness to be yours and God's completeness to be yours and God's health to be yours and God's peace to be yours and your families. Peace. Not a peace from the world. The, the, the world cannot broker a proper kind of peace. We've seen it for over thousands of years. It never happens. As long as this world is inhabited by sinful men. The fact of the matter is we're all sinners. We were born into sin. Not a peace from Egypt. But the peace from the true and living God. That's what he offered to them. Take notice that the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob was in complete control of the situation. Complete control. This statement that he gives indicates that the steward himself had been introduced to the true and living God, more than likely, as I said, through the testimony of and witness of Joseph. Which encourages my heart to say that even Joseph in this foreign land is one who will stand up to speak of his God. The God who was with him through every trial and trouble and circumstance. But the offering of this peace is something that should remind us of what Jesus said to his disciples before he went to the cross in Psalm, I'm sorry, in John 14, verse 27, when he said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Now let that sink in, what Jesus was saying to his disciples and saying to us peace, shalom, wholeness, completeness. Health and prosperity and peace be to you. I leave it with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Not as the world does things. This is the, this is the lesson I think that we all need to learn about everything that happens in life. The world has all kinds of copycats or all kinds of counterfeits and all kinds of things that may sound right and sound good, but it is only what God gives us that matters. The world can't give us anything that is eternal. The world can't give us anything that is of eternal value. Nothing whatsoever. Only God through Jesus Christ and through His Holy Spirit. And this is what Jesus is saying to his disciples before he gets nailed to the cross. He says, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. 
If He gives us His peace, He's given us everything that we need to face every trial and every trouble. And so this must have caused these men to take a deep sigh of relief. They were beginning to see the providential hand of God in all of this. Not for their destruction, because in their guilt they thought, eventually God is going to catch up to us and we're goners. Not for their destruction, but for their restoration and for the rebuilding of their family. God had a promise for this family to become a nation. Not just a bunch of little small tribes, but a nation of people. And Simeon then and their brother is released from prison. And by the way, it's believed that he may have stayed there for as much as a year in prison. I mean, it takes a long time to go to Egypt, to Canaan, and back to Egypt from there. They didn't just go and come right back. This is the real life that we ourselves live each and every day when God says, wait upon the Lord. When the Scriptures tell us, wait upon the Lord, are we truly waiting? When it tells us that one of the fruit of the Spirit is patience, are we really long-suffering? Are we really going to wait a long time? We live in a day and age, and this we've been doing for quite a long time, where we want everything when we want it. And we even put God under the gun with that. I mean, let's face it, you want mashed potatoes, just add water. And you can do that, you can buy a box and then, you know, just add water to the flakes of potato. And then you have something that looks kind of like it and maybe tastes a little bit like mashed potatoes. But if you really want good mashed potatoes, you've got to mash them. And it takes time and it takes effort and it takes work. You know, you do that and put a little bit of milk here and then put a little bit more butter and then a little bit more and then a little more, more butter and a little bit more potato. You know. Eventually you put the salt and the pepper and everything else and it is really good. A little bit more butter. But it takes time. This is why we're told in, in Isaiah, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We won't faint when we wait upon the Lord. It takes time sometimes. And it takes faith. Trust. I don't know when God has an answer for the problems that you might be going through, but I do know what. He does have an answer. Can you wait for it? Sometimes when we wait for an answer, we realize that what we've been asking for isn't the way we should ask. So in the midst of that waiting time, God helps us to refocus or to reshape the question. But He does so, so that we can receive the blessing He wants to give. And so certainly great comfort came to the hearts of these brothers. But guilt had kept the brothers from seeing God's hand of grace at work in their lives. Guilt had kept them from seeing these things.
How humbling to be told by this pagan idol worshiper how, how their own God was working in their lives. <laughs> you know, I often wonder if the Apostle John had this account of Joseph's brothers in mind when he wrote these words in 1 John chapter 4. Look at, uh, at verses 17 through 21. He says, Herein is our love made perfect. Notice what John says about love. Herein is our love made perfect. What, is it, what does it mean to be perfect? Remember, biblically, perfect means to be complete, whole, Very similar to shalom, completeness, wholeness. Herein is our love made perfect and complete, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Boldness. We can stand without worrying about who's behind us. Who's got your back? The Lord has it. He's also our shield he's our rear guard herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is so are we in this world as he is what have we been called to be we have been called to become more and more in the likeness of Jesus Christ so as he is so are we in this world there is no fear in love But perfect love, perfect love, complete love, whole love, unconditional love, God's love, agape love. But perfect love casts out fear. In other words, when we are loving as God has loved us, when we are loving in the love of God and of Christ, fear is cast out. We have nothing to fear. Because fear has torment. Remember, there's a good fear and a bad fear. Not quite like there's a good cholesterol and a bad cholesterol, but I'm just trying to see if anybody's listening anymore. But there's a good fear and a bad fear. This is talking about a bad fear. The fear that has torment. The fear that comes from guilt and sin. And all of these issues that make us keep looking over our shoulders. Because we know the time's coming. That's kind of, that kind of torment. I mean, that torments us. A lot of people living in torment today who say they're believers in Jesus Christ. Why? Perfect love casts it out. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Now notice his next statement. He says, we love him because he first loved us. See, we're, we're thinking that we're the, we're the creators of, of love. No, God loved us first. We cannot understand love until we understand God's love for us. The fact of the matter is, if we truly were honest, we would say, you know, we wouldn't even love ourselves. And yet God loves us. So it mustn't be because He loves us because we're so good. In fact, the Scriptures tell us that none of us are good. We were all born into sin. All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. So I'm grateful for this little verse. We love Him because He first loved us. But now let's consider that love that we have for Him because in verse 20 He says, If a man say, I love God and hated his brother, he is a liar. 
Now I want you to notice that John does not say, uh, if you say, if a, if a man say, uh, I love God but hateth his brother, he might be a liar. He could very possibly be a liar. It doesn't say that. John is very clear. If a, if a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. Here's a challenge for all of us. For he that loveth not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Then he says, and this commandment we have from him, that he who loveth God loveth his brother also. Jesus taught this time and time and time again. And speaking of the two major commandments, of course. He said the greatest commandment when asked, the greatest commandment, he said, is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In these hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. What are my commandments? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you say you love me, but you hate your brother. You see why I think that, Joseph, that John may have had the understanding of Jacob's uh, sons in mind. They were supposed to have been men of God, but they weren't. They hated their brother much more. So the question for us and the challenge for us and the test for us is, is our love complete? Is our love perfect? Is it whole? Is it full of peace? Is it spiritually prosperous and is it healthy? Is our love healthy? Is it shalom? Is it complete? Let me share this thought a couple of times if you have to write it down. But, but listen. His peace. God's peace. His peace defines the character of our love. Hyphen. No fear. That's the character of our love. If it is the love of God in us. His peace defines the character of our love. No fear. Because perfect love casts out fear. Is it making sense? You see how guilt and fear destroy more than build. So now the brothers of Joseph 
are going to learn a great lesson because they're going to go from fear to feast. This is God's plan for us, to go from this fear to feasting in His love, in His mercy, and in His presence. Let's look at verses 24 and 25. So the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water, and they washed their feet, and he gave their donkeys feed. Boy, they took care of all of their needs, even their animals. And then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they would eat bread there. This kindness to the brothers would help to further remove their fears, for they were treated honorably. And this brought to mind something that that really moved my heart. Because in many cases... And it's a fault in the church today. In many cases, when, when a person has, has fallen or going through a tremendous struggle in their life or, 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 or just has, has, has chosen to go in a different direction, a different path, a lot of times we look down upon that person rather than show kindness to them. The last time I checked, one of the fruit of the Spirit is Kindness. It never tells us to define and use that kindness only to those who are kind to you. In fact, Jesus taught us differently. Bless those who hate you and persecute you. But if we're filled with the Spirit of God, then we need to remember what it tells us in Galatians 6, that we are to bear one another's burdens. We, together, we are to bear one another's burdens. It's become very easy nowadays to say when we, we, we find somebody that's really hurting, to say to them, you know what, why don't you go here, let me give you the number to the church, call this pastor, call that pastor, and, and let them talk to you. Wait a minute, you are to bear one another's burdens. Each and every one of us here who believes and loves Jesus Christ, we are to bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. Not give them over to some pastor or, or even then, we're some professional. We are to bear one another's burdens. But if we don't begin with the Spirit of God in our lives, if we don't begin with kindness, I mean, let's face it, did these brothers deserve kindness and did they deserve honor? Not really. But then again, neither do we. Did we deserve the unmerited favor of God? Why is grace called grace? Because grace is undeserved favor. And this is what we've been given through the blood of Jesus Christ and through the work of Jesus on the cross. Undeserved favor. Are we willing to be kind and not judge a fallen person because as it says in Galatians 6 verses 1 and 2 that could be you and it could be me if we are mature in Christ we will weep for the heart that has fallen from the Lord but we will weep with the intention to 
restore. For Paul does say there in Galatians 6, restore such a one. Restore them. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. This kindness to the brothers would help them remove these fears. They were treated honorably. I mean, even their donkeys were fed. They were honored. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and they bowed down before him to the earth. Take note of that. Remember that. And then he asked them about their well-being and and he said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? He's wanting to know if his own father's alive still. Is he still here? They answered, Your servant, our father, is in good health. He is, he's still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. They bowed to Joseph. Do you remember what we read back in Genesis 37? A young Joseph had two dreams, both which he shared with his brothers and the second with his father as well. It was these dreams which had Joseph's brothers and even his father and mother bowing down to him that made them hate him to the point of wanting to murder their own brother. But now, over 20 years later, we see that those dreams that God gave to Joseph would truly come to pass as his 11 brothers would bow down before him. And eventually, when his father would come, the dreams would be completely fulfilled. What goes around comes around. As you sow, so shall you also reap. But in this case, God is bringing this to the place where they are being tested. Because God's not done with the sons of Jacob. He's not done with the sons of Israel. He promised Abraham that he would make of him a great nation. And these were the sons. These terrible sinners. You know, it's hard to wait upon God, especially when we're going through tough times. It is hard. And yet we know what God promised us. So all I can say to you today is be faithful to the Lord no matter what. Be faithful. And in His time, according to His plan, He is more than able to bring to pass what He has promised. We're told in the book of Ecclesiastes, all things are beautiful in His time. All things. They may not look beautiful now, but they will in His time. Listen to how truly faithful our God is in Numbers 23 verse 19. It says, God is not a man that He should lie, nor a son of man that He should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make good? In other words, doesn't God do everything that he says he's going to do? And doesn't he make good everything that he says he's going to make, say he's going to make good? Or says he's going to make good? Hasn't God said that? 
Isn't God faithful to do that? Oh, great is thy faithfulness we sang today. But I remember something a little older. Great is thy faithfulness, oh God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou faintest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Oh, how great our God's faithfulness is. We can trust Him. And we can trust in Him. Let's close out the chapter now. Verse 29. He lifted up his eyes. And he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. And he said, is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. God be gracious to you, Benjamin. Speaking to his own brother, his youngest brother, the same the same mother. And now his heart yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he, he went into his chamber and he wept there. We had seen Joseph do this before when they first arrived. When he saw his other brothers. But now he's seeing Benjamin for the first time in over 20 years. And his tender heart and emotions toward his family are revealed again as they came to the surface. Just seeing his little brother Benjamin, no longer a cute little boy, as when he left home. But he was brought about, all of this brought about a great emotional experience that, that Joseph had to conceal his weeping since it wasn't time yet to let his brothers know who he was. It was also a cultural necessity for this prime minister to keep his emotions in check and reveal no weakness in his character. Which brings to mind Proverbs 16, verse 32, where it says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And the second part, which applies to Joseph here, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. He who rules his spirit. Going back to one of the fruit of the spirit, one of the fruits is self-control. How the fruit of the Spirit help us in our daily lives to accomplish the things that God wants to accomplish in and through us. But then an interesting occurrence takes place during this preparation for this meal. Verse 31, then he washed his face and he came out and he restrained himself and he said, serve the bread. So they set him in a place by himself. So they're setting Joseph now in a table by himself. And them by themselves. And so in another place, the brothers are all placed in another table. And then the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. Three tables in the same room. Interesting, isn't it? But why? Because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. 
Now some would say, well, you know, the fact is the Egyptians didn't want to eat with the Hebrews because most of the Hebrews at that time, of course, it was a small group, which was really Jacob's family, but they were all sheep herders. For some reason, these Egyptians thought it uh, too low for them to be sitting in at a table with sheep herders, as it is said. What we do know is that these tables, these dinner tables, were segregated. Egypt was one of the most racially separated societies on the earth at the time of the pharaohs. The Egyptians believed that they came from the gods. And it wasn't Hollywood that taught us that. It was history. They believed that they came from the gods and all other peoples came from lesser origins. And so there was little social mixing with foreigners. It's even more distinct than that the Egyptians didn't eat with Joseph either. Did you notice that? Joseph's by himself and then the brothers are by themselves and the Egyptians in the court of Joseph or in the court of Pharaoh are by themselves. They didn't eat with Joseph either. Why? Much less with the strangers of Canaan. Because even though Joseph was second in command of all the land, he was still, and everybody knew this there except the brothers, he was still a Hebrew. Interesting. But again, his brothers didn't know that. They just thought he was pretty high up in the, you know, he had to eat by himself. No. The Egyptians knew that he was a Hebrew, so they didn't eat with him. The way I look at it, hey, there's more for me. At least on my table. <laughs> But let me just say that there is wisdom. There is wisdom from the Lord in all of this. Because before the account of Genesis is finished, and hopefully before the end of 2014, or the rapture of the church, whatever comes first. But before the account of Genesis is finished, God is going to bring the entire family of Jacob into Egypt where they will be isolated from the surrounding Egyptians for some 400 years, 400 plus years. Well, this is significant. Because in that time they will multiply greatly, increasing into millions. They will be segregated. Is it a bad thing? Socially it is, but, but here God uses it for a reason. Because it is quite possible that had they stayed in Canaan, they could have assimilated into the corrupt and godless peoples of that region. I mean, there were already dangers revealed. There were dangers revealed in the rape of, of Dinah and in the sins of the, of, of the sons of Judah and Judah with Tamar, not to mention going all the way back to Lot, the nephew of Abraham. Who kind of worked his way into... Sodom and Gomorrah. And even though he was righteous Lot, nothing went well for him there. You see the dangers. And God takes them out of Canaan, puts them in Egypt for over 400 years. But what's the good thing? Well, the good thing is that they grow out of being just a bunch of little tribal people into a great nation. That's what God said He was going to do. He was going to build a nation. From Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. 
He would place them to grow as a nation and not just a small series of tribes. Is this not God's wisdom? So in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways. Past finding out. We don't always understand what God does, but we're just glad that He does it because He knows what He's doing. But now a test is about to be administered to the brothers to see if they are really, truly changed men. So let's look at the last two verses of our text. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. Let me say to you very quickly here, that this arrangement where they sat from the oldest to the youngest was not done by the brothers. It was done by Joseph. That's why they were astonished that Joseph knew the ages of all of them and put them in place from oldest to youngest. They're astonished by this. Well, I'll come back to that in a moment. Look at verse 34. Then he took servings to them from before him, but Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. Why were the brothers astonished? Because obviously Joseph seated them according to their birth order and that was not just luck. Because you see, the odds doing this 100% correctly with those 11 brothers are approximately 1 in 40 million. It's pretty heavy odds there. 1 in 40 million. To seat them all correctly by age. So they're not sure what to think about this man. But they do know something is going on, which makes me wonder whether guilt was still eating at them a little bit. Still wondering, something's not right, something's going on, something's weird here. And then why did Joseph give Benjamin five times as much as his brothers? Because he wanted to see how his brothers would react when the younger was favored as in times past. When another younger brother was favored, who was the youngest before Benjamin? Joseph. And who was favored by Jacob over the other brothers? Joseph. Who was given the robe of, of, of birthright, uh, that what we call the, the robe of many colors, but it was that royal robe that was lined with gold and, 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 and spoke of the, the very birthright that he was to have over and above his other brothers? Joseph. And they didn't pass that test. The first time, what did they do? They took him to kill him. But instead, they sold him into slavery. But they, they might as well kill him, right? Because they thought, well, he's going to be dead anyway. We'll tell father that he's dead and put blood on his robe and say, well, the animals ate him and, and we'll be... We'll be gone from him, and he'll be gone from us, and that's it. Over and done. They had resented it so much when Jacob had favored Joseph, so now Benjamin is being favored. Were these then the same men who had thrown Joseph into a pit and were deaf to his cries for help? 
They were tested. They failed the first test. Some of you might remember when, whether in education or in business or in some, in some professional uh, way, you were called to a certain place to take a test. <clears throat> and sometimes people tell you, listen, you're going to take this test. But most of the time, everybody fails the first time. But you, you take the test and you know what you have to deal with. And then you go back the next time and you probably will pass it. Right? I mean, some of you have gone through that kind of thing. Whether, you know, in, in legal or medical or otherwise, you know, there's tests like that. All sorts of tests. Some, very few pass it the first time. What about our lives? Sometimes very few of us pass the first test that God gives us. And here they were tested with Joseph, but they failed that test miserably. And now they're given one more test. My question to you is, how'd they do? How do they do in this test? Tells us at the very end of this verse. And so they, they, they drank and were merry with him. They, 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 they were happy with it. They were okay with it all. They learned their lesson. They were satisfied with what they, had, what they had now. No longer were they envious. No longer would they let envy get the better of them. In other words, they had grown. They had passed the test, and in passing the test, they grew spiritually. Sometimes when the Lord tests our faith, we fail miserably. Am I alone in this? I mean, you don't have to acknowledge one way or another, but let me just, let me just say now, all of us have failed the test with God, haven't we? And we feel miserable when we do because we love God so much and we realize how much God loves us. We don't want to fail Him. We never want to fail the one that we know loves us so much and loved us so much that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would would, would not perish but have everlasting life. We don't want to fail a person like that. We don't want to fail our God that way. But the great thing about our God is that He does not give up on us. The great thing about our God is that He does not give up. And if we do fail, if we do falter, if we fail miserably, He will allow us to take the test again. And sure, it is far better to pass the test the first time. But I've seen too often where people pass the test and they become very proud and they say, look what I did. You didn't do it. God did it. God helped you pass the test. That's when we start to fail a little bit. (laughs) Because God humbles us then. So it's far better to pass the test the first time, but also understand that what God has done and what God has begun in us. You know, because for each and every one of us who are believers, God has begun a work in us. He hasn't completed it yet, but He's begun the work. And if He has begun it, He will finish it. He will complete the work that He has begun in you because He is faithful to what He has promised to each and every one of us. And I want to leave you with this verse. Philippians 1.6, many of you know it already. Being confident, of this, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. 
He not only will complete it, He is able to complete it. Let's not forget that. Our God is able to complete the work that He has begun in us. He is able and He will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. There's not one of us who's, who's, whose work is completed in us. You know, God's work is not yet complete in us. Thank the Lord for that. I mean, we want, we want the day of Jesus Christ to come. At that point, then it will be complete. I think this is a wonderful statement that when the day, when, when Jesus comes, He completes it. But He's begun the work and the hope is He will complete it. And it's a safe hope. It's a hope you can rely on. God loves you that much to complete the work that He started in you. Even if you fail. And we don't want to fail, but even if you do, He'll pick you up. And he'll say, let's try that again. Let's give it another shot. Because now you know I'm with you. And you can trust me. And when you're weak, I'll be your strength. Isn't God good? Let's pray.